The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're continuing on in our series in Nehemiah. After today, we've got two weeks in Nehemiah, and then we will jump in uh, to a series this summer just called The Next Chapter, where we'll look at some of our staff, elders, and spouses' favorite chapters of Scripture, kind of walk through those this summer. Today, we're continuing just to talk about how God rebuilds his people. Ezra started really with a rebuilding of the the temple and then the rebuilding of the people. And now we've been talking about the rebuilding of the wall. And Nehemiah 9 just kind of continues on from how Dave Tate taught us last week about the rebuilding of God's people. Now, if, if I uh, pull this movie up, and I'll, I'll just age myself. I was looking at this and I was thinking, man, Toy Story was a great movie of my childhood. And I thought, no, it was really a great movie of my college years. I'm a little bit older than that. But if someone said, tell me what this movie's about, I said, oh, this movie is about a pizza delivery guy from a restaurant called Pizza Planet. You might say, well, that's not exactly what it's about. Or if I said, this movie is about a singing penguin or... Uh, these little green Martian guys in a claw machine, or it's a movie about a really nice kid named Sid and his dog and how he's just misunderstood. You, You might say that they're all in the story, but that's not what the story is about. And sometimes when we think about our story, our lives, and and really where we fit into what God is doing in the world, sometimes we make ourselves or some other circumstance the center of the story. Nehemiah chapter 9 just makes it abundantly clear that this is a story of God at work and his people, and he really is the central figure of the story. And it's a beautiful chapter, really rich with just a lot of great truth. In fact, I would just tell you, uh, kind of as a homework assignment this week, it would just be a a great thing to go read Nehemiah chapter 9 three or four times. And if you're feeling really crazy, add Psalm 107 into that. You will be blessed by it. If you're going to do that, feel free to check your phone, um, take a nap. You can miss what I have to say today. But don't miss what Nehemiah chapter 9 has to say. Let's read just a little bit of it. It's the 24th day of the month, uh, verse 1 says. So last week, Dave Tate walked us through the Feast of Booths, which was the third of the feast that Israel is going to have. They go, they feast for seven days, eighth day of the feast, this great day. Then they have a day off. And then on the 24th day of the month, the people assemble, they come together to fast, they have on sackcloth, and they put earth on their heads, they are ready to repent. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins, iniquities of their fathers, they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So for three hours, they're reading from the book of the law, first five books of the Old Testament, And then for another quarter, for another three hours, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood the names of people that Dave Tate read twice last week. So I won't read those to you. 
And the Levite said, stand up, verse five, and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You're the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Well, God, we just say aloud to you, that's, that's who you are. We confess you're the good and righteous God. You are the keeper of promises. You accomplish your purpose and you are faithful to your people as creator and caller, deliverer and shepherd, merciful and faithful. And so we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So these these people, God's people, They understood feasting well, they understood fasting well, they understood worship well, they understood confession well, and they still struggled to follow God, but God was faithful. In fact, what we're gonna find out about God in Nehemiah chapter nine is that God is creator and caller, God is deliverer and shepherd, and God is merciful and faithful in the midst of his people's Rebellion, stubbornness, and disobedience. So God is creator and caller. You're the Lord alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the sea and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God is the creator. He's creator and he's caller but Israel's unfaithful. Just to kind of get a picture of a pattern of this, it looks kind of like this throughout the chapter. Israel acts presumptuously. They presume on God. They think they're entitled to his goodness. They sin against him. He's gracious and merciful. They commit great blasphemies and he gives them great mercy. They receive the land. He's promised to Abraham. It says, you have kept your promise, verse seven. Then they commit great blasphemies again. He gives them great mercy. They act presumptuously again. He gives them great mercies. He's gracious and merciful. He is the creator and he is the caller. He gives meticulous care to his creation and his people. There's not a detail that he doesn't know. He's created everything. We love creation at my house. I have four boys at home and a great majority of those boys really love the things of outside. One of our uh, our projects at school this year in second grade, was my second grader's favorite project was an insect project. So we caught more insects than we knew existed in central Texas. We froze them And then my wife and my second grader stuck uh, pins in them to pin them to a board. They'd been frozen for weeks, but every time one would just slightly move, my wife kind of did a little dance in the house. It was amazing. Um, uh, But we love creation because it 
we see these things that have clearly been made by a designer. In the last 48 hours at my house, we've caught um, a massive Texas spiny lizard, a leopard frog, a snake, and lots of fish. And when we look at those, we're amazed by God and the details he puts into creation. We're on a field trip Friday and, and, uh, and there's about 30 second graders and there's this Texas spiny lizard there and my, my son Mac um, just has a gift. Like if you could be a professional spiny lizard catcher, he would make millions. So it's way bigger than any lizard I, I would ever, like it just looks poisonous to me and I said, hey Mac, there it is, go catch it, right? I'd rather bite him than me. And so he just walks up and picks it up and all these kids are coming and looking at it and the lizard's looking like I'm fixing to die. And he puts it down and that thing's gone. And you see the spiny lizard and you think God made that lizard with fast legs because he knew it would have to run away from second graders one day. (laughs) God made bass with thick lips because he knew those Bowers boys would rip those lips with hooks one day. See, in all of creation, in all seriousness, creation just screams God is. It just shouts that God exists both in the tangible and in the intangible. God as creator makes himself known. And I I read something this week I just love because we tend to think of this in terms of matter and there's this reality that matter doesn't come from non-matter. You can't get something from nothing. If there's creation, there's a creator. But C.S. Lewis, when he spoke about this, he spoke about it in terms of reason. He said, it's only when you're asked to believe in reason coming from non-reason that you must cry halt. Wait, that doesn't make any sense at all. The fact that there would be people who are able to reason, who would have just come to exist by accident or chance, makes no sense at all. If there are people with the ability to reason some one, something with reason must have put him here and it's God, the creator, the world who made the heavens and the seas and the earth and all the hosts of heaven worship him. He's not just creator, he is the caller. He is the caller. You're the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. And then there's this most amazing thing that just points to God's mercy. And it says that you, in verse eight, it says you found his heart faithful. Well, if you go read about Abram who became Abraham, what you'll find out is he did have faith and he was full of sin. This guy just messed it up over and over and over. But God found his heart faithful. He called him and he sustained him. He upheld him. And listen, the scripture speaks of of God and it says that, that this God who calls gives us life and breath and everything else. That this God gives seed to the sower. He gives bread to the eater. It says that the clouds are the dust of his feet. And this is the God who called Abraham and then called Israel after him and is calling a people to himself from among all the nations. And when we read Nehemiah chapter nine, what we find is that he gives his people everything they need and more. 
So if you just consider the history of Israel, Nehemiah 9 hits these and about eight other things that God gave Israel. He gave them this covenant. He gave them commandments. He gave them bread. He gave them his good spirit. He gave them this land. He gave them water from the rock, signs and wonders in Egypt. He gave them kingdoms that they conquered and victory over their enemies. He gave them deliverers, wonders and his goodness. It's amazing when you read this, 425 years before Christ is born, you see glimpses of God the creator. You see God giving his Holy Spirit to them. These deliverers is kind of foreshadowings of the son he would send as a savior. There's this Trinitarian picture of who God is as the caller and creator of Israel. And he sustains them over and over and over, though they are faithless. And as he does, he foreshadows this Savior who will come. Hebrews 1 speaks about how he now sustains us. He's the radiance of the glory of God. That's Jesus, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This creator is also caller. He made purification for sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on God. And now he calls people to himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And as As they come, as we come, what we find is he's not just creator and caller, but he's also deliverer and the shepherd of his people. Verses about nine through 25 and a little bit further really just show how God delivers his people. In Nehemiah 9, 9, it says, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and the people of his land, for you knew they acted arrogantly, and you made a name for yourself. It says you divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you threw their pursuers into the depths like a stone in mighty waters. And by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and a pillar of fire by night. You came down and spoke with them. You gave them right rules and good commandments. He delivered his people. And as he did, he showed himself faithful. God told Abraham, far back before Israel would ever go into Egypt, here's what's gonna happen. A couple of generations after you, your people will be sent into slavery in a foreign land and they'll be there for 400 years. And after 400 years, I'll bring them out to worship me. I'll bring them back to this good land. And guess what? That exact thing happened. A couple of generations after Abraham, the people, uh, the people go into Egypt and when they end up in Egypt, they end up there for 400 years, enslaved for 400 years. God sends Moses a deliverer to bring the people out. God shows his faithfulness, his deliverer to his people, just like he told Abraham he would. But it's not just in Egypt. When they go out of Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness, God is giving them the law. Literally, Moses is up on a mountain speaking with God and the people go, we wanna go back to Egypt, we want new gods. They give all their gold and they form it into an idol. And God remains faithful to deliver them, not just from Egypt, but from themselves. Nehemiah 9.21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. 
What an amazing statement. We're reading this on Wednesday as we do each week as we talk about the word that we're going to teach. And and we're just reading through this chapter. And and Tim Cartwright says, man, I just want to read Nehemiah chapter 9 to my family over and over and over. Can you imagine 40 years in the desert, their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And if you stop and just think about the faithfulness of God to you and me, some of us through a lot of easy days, some of us through a lot of hard days, we've seen God be faithful to us in ways that we couldn't imagine. And metaphorically, our Our clothes haven't worn out. Our feet haven't swollen. He has been God, just as he was to Israel. And in his faithfulness, in his faithfulness, we just continue in our sin. We continue in our rebellion. They subdued the Canaanites. They possessed nations. It says they captured fortified cities in a rich land. They took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. I was reading in my reading plan just a couple of weeks ago. And when they go into the promised land, they've had manna for 40 years, bread from heaven. They go into the the promised land and the next day the manna stops because they ate the produce of the land. There was food they didn't plant. God provided for them So they were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. We read that and we think, man, how rude. He's calling them fat, right? God had provided for them so amply that they had want for nothing. This story is the story of God's faithfulness as deliverer and shepherd. He was faithful to guide them even out of their foolish ways. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you're a gracious and merciful God. That's verse 31. If you look back at verse 30, it says, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear to you. So you gave them in the hand of the peoples of the land But in your great mercy, you didn't wipe them out or forsake them. You're a gracious and merciful God. It says, you warn them by your prophets, through your spirit. See, when we look at how God speaks to people today, there are kind of a couple of camps we can get into that are a little bit dangerous. And one of those is that we have people who go, you know, I'm just going to not really worry about what the scripture says. I'll just let the spirit lead me, not really defining what spirit that is. One of the ways that people say it to me sometimes is, Chase, you know, I know the Bible says, but I've always believed God is like this and describes something very different than what the Bible says. Well, that's a dangerous thing to do. It will lead you to a God that is no God. It will lead you to idolatry. People do that, and they treat the spirit and the word like they're enemies instead of friends. There are other people who go, you know, I'm just going to read the Bible, and I understand exactly what it says, and my interpretation is the right interpretation, and if anybody disagrees with me, they obviously disagree with God, which is kind of putting ourselves in the place of God, and then it just drives us into a legalism that we can't keep up with. Israel couldn't keep up with it. That's what we're reading about in Nehemiah chapter 9. And it's both 
by the Spirit and through the Word, the prophets being the Word of God. Well, now, by God's Spirit and through His Word, we get warnings. Stay close to Jesus. Look at the Savior. Focus on the Savior. Trust the Savior. And just like them, He guides us out of our foolish ways. See, God is creator and caller. God is deliverer and shepherd. And the last thing we see about Israel's God in Nehemiah chapter nine is that God is merciful and faithful. God's merciful and faithful. Nehemiah 9, 17 is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. He's merciful and faithful to his people. They refuse to obey. They weren't mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. We forget that our Father stands ready to forgive. I would never, ever tell you a story about any of my children, especially not my six-year-old Will. But I got a friend with a six-year-old named Bill, okay? (laughs) And his six-year-old Bill is just sometimes really good at sin, right? And dives headlong into his rebellion and is just bold in it. But when Bill realizes he's caught in his sin, my friend can just see kind of the fear on his face. And he, he says, hey, buddy, no, come, come to dad. Let, let's talk. You come to me. When, when you've done wrong, you don't run. You come to dad. Well, listen, God is just such a better dad than my friend, Right? I think sometimes we forget that he says when you're weary and you're heavy laden, come to me. That's where rest is to be found. Whether, Whether you're just wallowing in addiction or whether you really struggle with anger or or whether really you medicate by shopping or you medicate with food like I do or whether you're just bound up in lust or You're just greedy and you know it. You find yourself in a place you can't get yourself out of. This was true 2,400 years ago. It was true when Jesus was looking out at the people going, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's true today. He stands ready to forgive. That's just the most freeing thing in the world to me because I sin a lot. And he's just ready, ready. Unlike my friend, he is slow to anger. And he's abounding. Don't laugh, I'm talking about my friend, not me, okay? (laughs) He's abounding in steadfast love. He's merciful. He's not just merciful, he's faithful in his mercy. He's merciful over and over and over. After they 
had rest. They did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. So they had dominion. But when they turned and cried just again and again and again, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercy. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end for you are a gracious and merciful God. Well, how had Israel sinned and what were they confessing? We looked at that on a table. They thought they were entitled to God's goodness and they forgot his power. They disobeyed his law. They didn't listen to his word. They walked in the evil of idolatry. They created a God out of gold or maybe it was out of sports or maybe it was out of shopping or maybe they created a God where they just got to control everything and their idolatry was really just themselves. They wanted to control their lives and decide how they wanted to live. They created their own idols and they repeated their stubbornness and rebellion. They didn't listen to his warnings. In the easiest time to obey, when King David ruled, I mean, the ruler is sometimes writing scripture. You've got this season of peace, then his son rules. You've got this season of prosperity under Solomon. And in the easiest times to believe, even then they rebelled. Can you imagine living in a nation that was just utterly full of prosperity and you could freely hear the word of God and it would be so easy to believe and people still rebelled? I cannot imagine what that would be like. But that's what Israel did. And so on this day, they've come and they've read the word of God for three hours and it is a revealer. It has just cut them open in the middle and they've seen their own sinfulness and they've seen God's goodness. And so corporately, they come together confess. Now when we, when we think about confession, we often uh, go awry because there are people who look at confession and go, I'm not confessing what the previous generation did. That doesn't have anything to do with me. Because you used to read the Old Testament. Kind of over and over and over, you hear people confessing the sins of their fathers. Now on the other side of this confession, you have people who go, no, 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 you've harmed me and you've got to confess and unless you say the exact words I want you to say the way I want them to say It's never gonna be good enough. And they put themselves in the place of God. And these are people who are freely coming to say, yeah, we're utterly rebellious, that's who we are, and you're utterly merciful. Why is it difficult and what do we misunderstand? I think we make this mistake. More than we are the faithful people of God, we are the people of the faithful God. You understand that? Israel would sometimes think we're God's people. We've been faithful. Well, no, you haven't. Come on. More than we're the faithful people of God, we're the people of the faithful God. In spite of our rebellion, in spite of our rejection, in spite of our doubt, in spite of our unbelief, in spite of our turning from his ways, he's faithful. He's faithful. When I read Nehemiah chapter nine, I think about Romans seven and how Paul just kind of lays out 
his own personal journey of sinfulness and not wanting to sin but struggling with sin. The very thing he doesn't want to do is the thing he does. The thing that he does want to do, he's not able to do. And at the end of Romans 7, he says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he has given us victory. And then chapter eight says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This law of sin and death, it's what Israel couldn't follow and none of us could either. But Jesus came and took the condemnation that belonged to all of Israel and you and me. And now there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. In fact, if we kept reading in Romans 8, what we would read is nothing. Nothing. Even if we were as unfaithful as Israel, we couldn't be separated from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. See, the, the reason that we are, are so afraid to confess is first because we get confused about who we are. We are the people of the faithful God. We also get confused about what happens when we confess. We're like a child who's afraid to come to a father who loves him. But for God's people, the end of confession is not devastation, but adoration. See, they read the book of the law and then they confess their sins and then they worship. There's a a TBCer who's been here for a long time, his name is Thomas. And Thomas shared with me a few months ago uh, just about a moment of repentance in his life that was pretty significant. And I was, was deeply moved by it. And I asked him then, could we get this on video so we could share this with our people? I think this is maybe what confession looks like when it's done with a heart that's ready to turn to God. So would you listen to Thomas's story? My name is Thomas Baird. I'm married to Cindy Baird. Uh, she's clearly the better half of me. We have six children, and we've been at TBC since the early 2000s, probably 18, 19 years. about 20 of us and uh, we ended up in Cochin, India and uh, we did you know, street evangelism. Uh, we met in groups. We went to existing churches and we, we prayed for people and they wanted to be prayed for. And so after about three weeks in a little hotel, we're waiting for a day or two before we head back to the United States. And so we just started taking turns and just hearing and then praying for people. And we've been doing that all day. And toward the, it was about nine o'clock at night. And and they said, well, Tom, let's pray for you. What can we pray for you for? I said, well, I've always wanted my sight back. So they gathered around me. I was sitting in their chair and laid hands on me. And, and there was a, a pastor from Phoenix. He just all of a sudden said, you know, this has never happened to me, but I just sense there's a real spirit of intellectualism over your life. And, uh, and I, just, I just think you need to repent of that. 
And I began to just repent. Lord, I just repent of intellectualism. I repent of being wise in my own eyes. I just repent uh, for all, all those things in my life. And as I did that, I felt like a ton of bricks came off my shoulder and I jumped up and there were people were just clapping their hands and they were shouting and they were praising the Lord and they were some were dancing, some were. It was one of the most unique moments in my life. But I thought right then and there I was getting my sight back. <laughs> my physical sight back. But it didn't. But I just felt lighter. I could felt like I could walk six inches off the ground. I mean, it just it was just a tremendous change uh, of heaviness that was removed. I had no clue that that heaviness was there. When I came back, Cindy and I were talking. She says, "You've changed. You've changed." I says, "You've got your sight, not your physical sight, but you've got your spiritual sight." It was just it was a change. It was just you know, it, it kind of like the. Uh, the amazing grace, you know, at the end says, you know, at the end it says, I was blind, but now I see. Okay, I see. We're all needy and afflicted. No matter how mature we think we are or how, um, you know, how successful we think we are or how we think we got it put together, we all have issues in our life. And when the Lord is gracious enough to show us the opportunity to repent and to get set free, it's is, is beyond description. You know, I look back in the, in the Psalms and uh, David talks about you know, breaking the bones in Psalm 51. And I know in my life that the thing he used to get my attention was the loss of my vision. And that it just is, as a shepherd will take that lamb and put around his neck and, and heal those broken legs, you know, God has carried me around his neck and he has, he has healed me. He gave me what I really need. You know, I don't need my physical sight. I've got my spiritual sight. See, in, in confession came freedom. Israel confesses their sins on this day, and Ezekiel had spoken of a new covenant that was coming, and I think that Israel thought, this was going to be that new covenant. This was going to be the day, but it wasn't for them. They continued to rebel even in their own land. They continued to reject God. But he described a day that was coming, and he said, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land and will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This new covenant that was coming was coming through Jesus who through his death and resurrection showed God to be faithful beyond imagination. As you hear Thomas's story and as you hear the story of God's people, I wonder is there a, something that you would lay before the Lord today? For Thomas, he said, I just said, yeah, God, I repent. There's a spirit of intellectualism. I'm wise in my own eyes. Are you wise in your own eyes? Do you think all your resources belong to you and not God? Um, do, do you wrestle with any 
form of addiction with your eyes, with your mouth, with what you're putting into your body? Do you wrestle with an idol of control? Do you want to be your own God? How might you confess to the Lord today? I want to pray for us and and then we'll sing. And as we sing together, maybe that would be a time of prayer for you to speak to the merciful and faithful God who has given us this new covenant in Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, we humble ourselves before you. And Lord, as as the sheep who come to the shepherd, God, we would just say today, if there are bones that you need to break, would you break them? Would you put us around your neck and would you carry us, God? Would you bring us to the end of ourselves that we might die to sin and live to God? That we might no longer be enslaved to the passions of our flesh, but that we might really walk as children of the light, those who've been given a new kingdom and a new covenant. God, would you have your way with us? Would your word lay us bare today? And would you move in our hearts in your Holy Spirit, God, that we might truly and genuinely deal with our own sin and humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.